Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You see Paul's main point in this paragraph there stated twice, once at the beginning, verse 8, and once at the end in verse 10. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That's the main point that Paul wants to get across in this passage. Love fulfills the law. But that raises some questions that I want to spend our time answering this morning. I think in particular there are three that if we can answer them will not only help us to grasp the import of this text, but also to see and experience all of life in a new and glorious way. Those three questions are these. Number one, why should we be concerned with fulfilling the law? Number two, how does love fulfill the law? And number three, how can we love so as to fulfill the law? Let's look at the first question as we begin. I I imagine that this question, why should we be concerned with fulfilling the law? I imagine it coming from two very different hearts and being asked in, in two very different ways. On the one hand, if you are an unbeliever here, you may be asking, why should I care about some set of moral standards imposed upon me by the Christian God, if indeed he actually exists? I mean, I'm in agreement with you that no one should kill or steal or lie or do anything else that would harm another human being, but I don't like being told who I can and can't sleep with, uh, when I, what I can and can't believe. And I especially don't like this idea of being threatened with eternal punishment if I don't worship your God. Well, let me briefly address this concern. It rests, I think, upon a couple of fundamental misunderstandings. The first is that You were created by God for infinite joy, not for miserable slavery. God doesn't need slaves. He didn't create man to be in slavery, groveling in fear before him. An omnipotent God who is complete in himself doesn't need slaves. Indeed, he doesn't need anything. God created man, rather, in his very own image and endowed him with innumerable blessings and gifts out of the sheer abundance and overflow of his glory and life and joy and power. And the second truth that you need to understand is that because God is the creator and the source of all that exists and because we were created in his image, the way of infinite joy is not to be found in independence from him, but rather in a relationship with him of love, trust, honor, obedience, worship. The law is a reflection of who God is. 
his own good, holy, joyful character. Therefore, the law should not be viewed as a means of slavery, as if God were imposing rules upon you haphazardly, just trying to keep you from having any fun in this life. The law is the way of life and joy and peace. You should care about fulfilling the law because you care about being happy. Everlastingly so. Infinitely so. And you should listen closely to this message because it will tell you how you can fulfill the law and so experience life and joy and peace forever in the presence of an infinitely happy and infinitely holy God. Holiness is the way of happiness. But most of you in here are believers, you're followers of Christ. And obedience is part of your new nature that you received by the Spirit when you were born again. For you, the question, why should I be concerned about the law, doesn't come from a heart of rebellion or a heart of resistance that desires independence from God and doesn't want him sitting up in heaven telling you what to do. Rather, Your question arises out of genuine confusion over the place and purpose of the law in the Christian life. And I I get that confusion because as we've journeyed through Romans, we've heard Paul say some pretty disparaging things about the law. Like Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Or Romans 7.4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code." Or Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And we could go on. Throughout Romans and Galatians, Paul is emphatic that for the sinner, the law can only bring guilt and shame and death, not life and joy and peace. The law can only condemn sinners. It can never justify sinners. Indeed, the very glory of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the likeness of sinful flesh and took our place under the law. And though he had no sin of his own, he took upon himself our sins and suffered in his body on the cross the just penalty of our sin under the law. And in so doing, he, re- he redeemed us from the law's curse by fulfilling the law in our place. Jesus both kept the law in perfect righteousness, thus meriting the law's reward, life, joy, and peace. And he took upon himself the unrighteousness that belonged to us and so suffered the law's penalty that was due to us, namely death and wrath and the curse. And he did so as our representative, as our substitute in the judgment of God. Therefore, For those who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
Jesus and we have changed places under the law. The law has already been fulfilled for those who are justified. So we return to the question. So why should I be concerned with fulfilling the law if the law has already been fulfilled in Christ? And that's a fair question. Because in a legal sense, through justification, through our union with Christ in his obedience and righteousness and law keeping, I have already fulfilled the law. Well, the answer to the question, I think, lies back in Romans 8. And I invite you to turn there with me. Look again at verses 1 to 4. And I want you to watch for the connection between the saving work of Christ and the fulfillment of the law. Watch how they they fit together. We'll begin again in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now watch verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What Paul is saying is that when we were still sinners, when we were alienated from God under his wrath, the law was for us and could only be for us a law of sin and death. All it could could do was convict us of our sin and sentence us to God's wrath and fury. The law commanded us to love God supremely and to love our neighbor selflessly. And we didn't do that because we couldn't do that in our fallen state. So the law condemned us. The law is a lifeless, powerless thing of itself. It's merely a measuring rod. A tool of measurement that can, that can show us how far short of God's glory we fall, but it can do nothing to raise us up to his glorious standard. So instead of the law, God sent Jesus, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And when Jesus was crucified for sinners, God condemned sin in his flesh instead of in ours. And in so doing, Paul says, God did what the law could not do. Namely, he justified lawbreakers. He declared the unrighteous to be righteous. Lawbreakers to be law keepers. But justification, that is being declared righteous under the law in the judgment of God, that was not the end. That was not the goal of God in the gospel. Justification is not the end of Christ's saving work. If it were, there would be no Romans 8, 4. Why did God send his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemn him in the flesh? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Christ not only died in order to fulfill the law for you, 
That is for your justification in order that you who are ungodly could be declared righteous in his sight and receive everlasting life and joy in his presence forever. Christ also died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high and poured out his spirit upon the church in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you as you walk, not according to the works of the flesh, but by the power of the spirit. So the law was not set aside when Christ came as though it doesn't matter anymore. As if there were no more commandments or no more rules. As though there were no prescribed way in which we should walk. No, do this and don't do that in the New Testament. Of course there is. The New Testament is full of commandments. Read the very next passage in Romans 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Don't do those things. They're unlawful. No, the law is today what it has always been, namely a reflection of God's holy character and the way in which his people are to walk in life and joy and peace. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the law is the way that we do that. The difference is that now the condemnation of the law has been taken away by Christ's death. Now our justification has been eternally secured by Christ's righteous obedience. And now the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts in order that we can now fulfill the law. How? The fruit of the Spirit is love and love is the fulfillment of the law. So back to the question, why should we, new covenant believers who are no longer under law, but under grace, why should we be concerned about fulfilling the law? Because, number one, the law is the only path of life, joy, and peace. You will not find life, joy, and peace by walking in sin. Number two, because the goal of the gospel is the fulfilling of the law. Christ died not only that the law might be fulfilled for us, but in us. And number three, now that Christ has risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, he has given us the Spirit in order that the law would be fulfilled in us. Some people think the law has nothing to do with the Christian life. They're called antinomians, literally anti-namas, against the law, and they're wrong. The law has everything to do with the Christian life. The law is the Christian life. It is a life of love. Second question. How does love fulfill the law? Well, again, Paul says twice, love is the fulfillment of the law. Verses 8 and 10. But how? Before I answer that question, I need to give us a little bit of definition as to what Paul means by law. So we know exactly what we're talking about. My view is that Paul is using law as he usually does. That is of the law of Moses as it is a reflection of God's eternal moral law. Of the Mosaic law only insofar as it is a reflection of 
God's moral law. In other words, when Paul says love is the fulfillment of the law, he doesn't have in view the ceremonial or civil aspects of the Mosaic law. He's not thinking about dietary codes. He's not thinking about ritual purity. He's not talking about the laws against or or what to do in the case of leprosy in Leviticus. He's not talking about the various ordinances governing worship in the tabernacle. Those aspects of the Mosaic law were given in 1406 BC to a specific people for a specific time, the nation of Israel living under the old covenant. Rather here, when Paul is calling us to love so that we may fulfill the law, he's speaking of the moral law, which has been in the world from creation. That law, which is a reflection of God's own holy character and is inscribed upon the conscience of men and women who are created in his image. That law, which was summarized and written down for the first time in the Ten Ten Commandments given to God's people at Mount Sinai. That this is what Paul means is clear, not only from his use of the word law throughout Romans, but also by the fact that Paul immediately explains his statement about how love is the fulfillment of the law by quoting from four of those ten commandments. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's important that we accurately define the word law because while we are not under the ceremonial or the civic aspects of the law of Moses given to Israel, and while we're not under the law in any aspect as it pertains to how we get right with God in justification, we are still Bound to the law as the way of life, the way that we walk, the way of sanctification. In other words, adultery, murder, theft, covetousness are still sin after the coming of Christ, just as they were before his coming. And those things that are prohibited in the other commandments in the moral law as well. The law has not changed from covenant to covenant, the moral law in any rate. What has changed is our capacity to fulfill God's law. Now we have the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now with that explanation, how does love fulfill our moral obligation to the rest of humanity, to our neighbors and the nations? How does love fulfill the law? I think there are two aspects to Paul's thinking here. Number one, love is the summary of the law. That is, every commandment in the law is the outworking of that one essential commandment to love. Do you remember when Jesus was asked by the lawyer who was sent by the Pharisees and the Sadducees what the greatest commandment in the law was? Jesus responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says all of the law, all of the prophets, the whole of the Christian life depends upon the commands to love God supremely and to love people selflessly. That word depends that Jesus uses there, it literally means hangs 
Uh, it's the same word that's used of Jesus hanging on the cross or in Acts 28 of the viper that, that clutched on and was hanging from Paul's hand. What, what Jesus is saying is that the law is like this solid rock and, and all of the commandments, or rather love, the commandment to love is like the solid rock and all of the commandments are anchored into that solid rock command to love and they hang from it. It's, the, it's what gives the law its concreteness. It's the summary of the law. And it's clearly the second of those commands that Paul has in mind in this passage. Because the commands that he quotes come from the second table of the law that deal not with our love to God, but with our love to our neighbor. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul says that all the commandments that deal with our human-to-human relationships are summed up or united in this one word. And he quotes from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let's break this apart and I want to show you what he means. In other words, you shall not commit adultery is a command to love. Love does not violate sacred covenants. It doesn't betray solemn vows. So another way of stating it is that the positive command that correlates to the negative prohibition, you shall not commit adultery. The positive command that is is attached to that is, you shall not commit adultery. Rather, you shall love your spouse. Or, you shall not murder is a command to love. Love does not so disregard the inherent value of another human being that it deems that person as being unworthy of pity or compassion or life. Love does not, for example, leave one's knee on the neck of a man for five minutes and 53 seconds while he continually pleads that he can't breathe until he becomes unresponsive, then keep one's knee on his neck for another two minutes and 53 seconds until he is dead. Love doesn't do that. The positive command that correlates to that negative prohibition to not murder is love. You shall not murder, rather you shall love. You shall not steal. You shall not covet our commands to love. So, for instance, once again, ripping from last week's headlines, love does not break into stores and have no, that have nothing whatsoever to do with the death of George Floyd and run out with items that you did not pay for, that you did not earn, that do not belong to you, nor does love despise my neighbor for having what I want such that I decide that I'm more deserving of it than he is. Love doesn't do that. So the positive command that attaches to the negative prohibition, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you should ask yourself, would I want my spouse to give himself or herself sexually to another person? No. Would you want someone to snuff out your life? No. Would you want someone to break your windows and take your things and set fire to your business? No. Then do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love is the summary of the law. But it's also the substance of the law, which which provides us with another important nuance to this idea. Love fulfills or is the fulfillment of the law. That is, love is the essence of obedience to the law. Love is the stuff 
of which law-keeping is made. In other words, if you refrain from committing adultery, but you don't love your spouse with a pure and affectionate love, you haven't fulfilled the law. And if you refrain from murder, but you don't love your neighbor and seek his or her good and his or her flourishing and his or her life, then you haven't fulfilled the law. If you refrain from theft and covetousness, but you don't love your neighbor and seek to protect what belongs to him or her, you haven't fulfilled the law. Obedience is not just refraining from that which is prohibited. It's exhibiting that which is commanded. John Murray writes that if, if law were a cup to be filled, it would be filled to the brim with love. Love is the substance of the law. But how do we love like this? Now, surely we can recognize that such love is not natural to us. Because if, if it were, if fallen men were capable of loving like this, there would be no adultery or murder or theft or covetousness. There would be no police brutality. There would be no rioting. There would be no looting. There would be no gossip or slander or unforgiveness or betrayal or racism. And yet the world is filled with such things. Now to be sure, fallen men love their friends and family. That is, they love those who love them, but fallen men do not love their enemies. They don't love those who are different. And Jesus put his finger on this crucial problem that lies at the heart of the fallen sinful nature in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than they? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And there you have it. There is Jesus's commentary on the standard of the law. Perfection. Perfection is loving God as God loves himself, namely supremely. And it's loving man as God loves man, namely selflessly. You haven't fulfilled the law if you only love your friends. You haven't fulfilled the law if you only love your family. You haven't fulfilled the law until you've loved your enemies. You haven't fulfilled the law until you've prayed for those who persecute you. You haven't fulfilled the law until you've done more than the tax collectors, the Gentiles, and the rest of unregenerate humanity have done. Those who don't know God. You haven't fulfilled the law until you love like God loves. So how do you do that? How can a sinner love like God loves? And I think there's a hint in our text. Look again at verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Owe. 
That's the language of debt. Paul's saying, don't be in debt to anyone except the debt of love that you owe to one another. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked here talking about personal finances. Paul's main point in this, pro- in this passage is not personal finances. It's the law. It's love. His point is pay your debts, including the debt that you owe to your neighbor, which is a lo- debt that you will never pay off. And it raises a question, though. How did I get in debt to my neighbor? Okay. Owe no man anything except the debt that you owe of love. So the question is, how did I get in this debt of love to my neighbor? Or perhaps more to the point, parable of the Good Samaritan, who is my neighbor? How did I get in debt to my enemy? Why do I owe them my love? You know, we usually think of debt in terms of owing something that someone has given to us or owing something to someone who has given something to us. For instance, the bank gave me money so that I could buy my house. And now I owe them that money back with interest in the form of monthly mortgage payments. Or on a more personal level, if someone does me a favor, I owe them a favor in return. But clearly Paul is not merely speaking of loving those who have given something to us. And neither was Jesus when he said, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? So how did I get in debt to those who haven't loved me, to those who haven't given anything to me, to those who have in fact hated me, or to those I've never even met? Why am I in debt to all of these people? Why do I owe them my love? And I think the answer lies in Paul's use of the same word back in Romans chapter 1 and verse 14. Paul says there, I am under obligation. Same word, literally, I am a debtor. Both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager also to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul was in debt to these people. He was in debt to the Romans. He was in debt to people that he had never met, to people who had never given him anything. And the way that he intends to discharge this debt, to pay it back, is by preaching the gospel. Now the question is, how did Paul get into debt to these people such that he owed them the gospel? And I think you'll find the answer if you just sort of trace Paul's thoughts up to verse 5 in chapter 1, where Paul says, through whom, that is through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And there it is. That's what sits at the bottom of this universal debt. Grace. Paul had received grace from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had received apostleship, a commission from Jesus with the promise of power to bring the nations to the obedience of faith through the gospel. And that's what put him in debt to the nations. And I used to think that what Paul meant there in verse 14 was something like this. Jesus died to save me, and now I'm going to go make some return on his investment by going and proclaiming his salvation to others. But that's 
not what Paul says, and that's not what he means, because that would destroy the very nature of the grace that Paul preaches. Grace, by its very definition, is free. It's unmerited. It cannot and dare not be paid back. Paul doesn't say he was in debt to Jesus. That's why he's going to go to the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise, the foolish, and to the Romans. He doesn't say that he was in debt to God. He says he's in debt to people. People he'd never met. People who were going to persecute him when he got there. I owe them love. I owe them the gospel. Why? Because freely you have received, therefore freely give. Think of it like this. It's the debt of moral obligation. It's the same debt that one would have if he were on a sinking ship and someone pulled him aside and said, hey, I know where the life preservers are. That man who's been given the grace of being told where and how he can save his life has a moral obligation to the rest of the crew and the passengers to share those life preservers. He's in debt to those people because of the grace that he has received. It's the same principle at work here. So we go back to Romans 13, 8. How did we get in debt to our neighbors, those we know, as well as the nations, those we don't? How did we get in debt to our friends, those who have loved us and given us something? And to our enemies, those who have hated us and taken things from us? And the answer is grace. God loved us when we were enemies who had defaced his creation and defrauded him of his glory. And out of his love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay off our debt to sin and to reconcile us to God through his life and death and resurrection. Now being justified, reconciled, forgiven, saved through no working or effort or merit of our own, but through free and sovereign grace, we have now been made debtors to those who likewise are undeserving and who likewise need God's grace. Grace has made us debtors, not to God, not to Christ. That's not grace. Christ died in order to pay off our debt to God. Rather, grace has made us debtors to one another and to our enemies, to all people. This is what Paul means by owe no one anything except to love each other. So my answer to the last question is this. How can we love so as to fulfill the law? Immerse yourself in grace. Soak in it. Marinate in it. It is an inviolable law that you cannot love and cherish, cherish and enjoy and root your life in the grace of God in Christ and at the same time hate your brother, your neighbor, or your enemy. It can't be done. Show me someone who hates their brother, someone who has unforgiveness and bitterness in their heart towards an enemy, and I will show you someone who doesn't love grace. So I leave you this morning with two questions to ask yourself. Go ahead and bow your head with me as you reflect upon these. Question number one. 
Do you know this grace and love of God in Christ? Do you know what it means to be set free from your obligation to the law? To be forgiven without paying a cent towards your own debt of sin? Do you know what it is to be released from the scaffold where you awaited your judgment and execution under the just sentence of God because Christ willingly and freely took your place? Because you've got to begin there or else you will never be able to fulfill the law of love. You must know yourself loved freely, graciously, joyfully by God in Christ before you are able to love others, your brother, your neighbor, and especially your enemy. So this morning, this text is an invitation to receive the free grace of God who will release you from your debt that you owe to his law in order that you may freely give to everyone, deserving or not. Trust the grace of Christ today. Second question. Are you harboring bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred, racism, or any other attitude unbefitting love? Are you harboring any of those in your heart this morning? This text is calling you to lay it down before the cross of Christ. Where flows his cleansing, atoning blood. To let that blood which washed you of every stain wash over those ugly, hateful, vindictive feelings and to cleanse them by the power of free and unmerited grace. Say to yourself this morning, Christ died for me when I was yet a sinner, an enemy, hateful and rebellious toward him. He loved me when I was so undeserving. Therefore, who am I to withhold love from someone else because they haven't earned it? Remind yourself that earned has nothing to do with it. Deservedness has nothing to do with it. Those words do not belong in the economy of grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. A debtor, not to God, not to Christ, but to people. My brother, my neighbor, my enemy, and the nation.